from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Verse 4, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so, Father, we ask that tonight, that as we continue in this book, the book of Judges, that we would learn what it is um, not to do. Uh, We can take heed to how it is that we can get to that place of willful disobedience and turning away from you and turning to idols, turning to the pleasures of the world. And Lord, um, it's something that we want to be aware of. And these things are written for us that we may learn from their mistakes and their past sin, that we may not get involved in it. But Lord, that we may stay the course of running our race strong and with endurance to win the prize, setting our hands on the plow and keeping our focus on you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that, that these principles and truths that we're going to see tonight would be worked out in our lives to where it draws us closer to you to live a life after you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we enter into chapter 2 of the book of Judges, chapter 1 kind of was a, 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 a continuing of, of the book of Joshua, their conquest there in Canaan. Joshua is at the end of his life. And they have gone into the promised land. They've been driving out the inhabitants. But what we saw is it was an incomplete uh, conquest of the land. And what we saw in chapter 1 was there was compromise in that, that the children of Israel, they would take the Canaanites and make them uh, be forced labor. They, they would be ones that instead of driving them out, as the Lord has said over and over repeatedly to them when they were in the wilderness. Listen, when you go into the promised land, I don't want you to make a covenant with them. I don't want you to have anything to do with those Canaanites and their gods and their false worship. You're not to to compromise in any way. You are to utterly to destroy them, utterly drive them out of the land that I'm going to give to you. But what we have seen is in chapter 1, that when it was all said and done at the end of Joshua's life, there was compromise. There was an incomplete conquest of the land. So what they did was, is instead of driving them out, they made the Canaanites forced labor. And they could have driven them out because if you make somebody you know, forced labor, as they did, and, and, and they're working for the children of Israel, they could, could have driven them out. But they made a, a compromise there. Um, instead of going into the valleys, as Judah, as we saw, where the Canaanites had chariots of iron, they were afraid to do that. When Joshua had said that you're a great people and your God is an awesome God, so go drive out those inhabitants even though they have chariots. And so as we saw that in chapter 1, now in chapter 2 we see that the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bacham, And this is the Lord himself, and it's clearly the Lord himself. How do we know? Because he says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land. I swore to your fathers, I will never break my covenant with you. So this is the Lord directly speaking to them. And once again, he's reminding them what he has done. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to the place where I made a covenant with you, and I will never break that covenant with you. And this covenant has been established with the children of Israel, and God's law and God's word and God's promises have been given to them repeatedly, and they know the covenant that God made with them. And God said that if you follow after me, as you love me and worship me, there's going to be blessing. There's going to be victory. There's going to be blessing in the land, and you're going to be prosperous All those things that we saw in that covenant established in chapters 28 and 29 of the book of Deuteronomy. But if you forsake me, there's going to be serious consequences. 
And those consequences are going to be that you're going to be in bondage, and there's going to be uh, despair and defeat. There's going to be drought. Uh, there's going to be captivity even. And so here the Lord reminding them again of the covenant that he had made with them. And you shall not make a covenant, as he, the Lord has said, with the inhabitants of the land. You're not going to make peace treaty with them. You're not going to compromise with them. You're not going to ally with them. You're going to drive them out. And if you don't, they're going to be a sore to your eyes is what they're going to be. And um, they're going to be a thorn to your side. So here the Lord, again reminding them of the covenant, but he says something very interesting. He says in verse 2 that he says that you have not obeyed my voice. And then he says, why have you done this? And what we're going to see in chapter 2 here is we're going to see that Israel is going to begin their disobedience. The days of the judges here, about 350 years time span, where they are in disobedience to the Lord. They will cry out to the Lord. The Lord will raise up a deliverer, uh, a judge, and then they will repent for a short time, and then they will go back to worshiping the gods of um, the Canaanites. And so that's what we really begin in chapter 2. And what we're going to see in chapter 2 is kind of a summary of the book of Judges. And we'll see that in just a little bit. But here's the thing. Think about this, folks. Here they were under Joshua, that generation. Joshua, a book of victory. Joshua, a book of, of uh, showing you know, how it is that we can enter into the fullness of God's blessing and abundant life that he has for you and for me. We saw the principles and truth, walking in obedience, stepping out in faith, uh, believing in the promises of the Lord. And they had great victory, didn't they? So Joshua is a, a book of victory. Judges is a book of defeat. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of Judges is that they're going to do more wicked as time goes on. The theme of the book of Judges is they did what was right in their own eyes, and we see that they forsook the Lord during that time. And we're going to see that their sin is going to get worse and worse and worse, that their forsaken the Lord and their willful disobedience is going to show more as they enter deeper into sin and more perversity and wickedness is going to be prevalent in the land. So how do they get from a generation where they're seeing the mighty works of God, stepping out in faith, and having victory in their lives, to where they're now in disobedience in Judges chapter 2. How did they get there? And I don't want us to miss this point, because it's something that we need to understand very clearly. It didn't happen overnight, did it? But in between there, there was compromise. And that's what was taking place, I believe, in chapter 1, that's why it's recorded for us. Hey, there was conquest, but there was compromise in that conquest. It was an incomplete conquest. They didn't drive out the inhabitants. They, they kept them around. They, they were afraid of them. And that compromise continued and continued and continued till finally it was true what the Lord said, that those inhabitants that you did not drive out are a sore to you. They're a thorn in your side. And that's what we're seeing here. I mention that because that's oftentimes the way it is with a Christian. When a Christian is one that at one time just walking with the Lord and they're strong with the Lord and they're in Bible study and they're growing in the things of God and all of a sudden in a period of time they can find themselves involved in sin and participating in sin and, and disobedience to the Lord. How did they get there? How they got there is there was compromise that began to take place in their life. And I've talked to, to individuals over 18 years of being a pastor that have been in my office and, again, defeat in their life and, and just sorrow and sadness because of the consequences of their sin that they were involved in. Maybe perhaps they got in an extramarital affair. And it wasn't that they just woke up one day and said, hmm, I think I'll have an extramarital affair, you know, with the secretary or somebody, you know, down the street or whatever it might be. What happened was over time there was compromise. There was compromise. There was compromise, allowing things to happen that they shouldn't have and getting close to somebody that, and, and things taking place that should not have happened, and finally they found themselves in sin. Or maybe in a business where somebody got over their heads and, and, and business 
dealings were dishonest and it started out small and small compromises and it just got greater and greater and greater and all of a sudden they're experiencing the consequences of that. And that's why it's very important that we as Christians that every single day that we're going to the Lord and we're like David that says, Lord, here's my heart. Search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. That, Lord, that you check my heart, you speak to my heart and be someone and be a Christian that is that's listening to the voice of the Lord. Is there anything going on, compromise or something that is not pleasing to you, Lord, or unlike you, even in the smallest degree? Because if you allow that compromise to come in and say, oh, that's okay. It's okay to participate in this or be involved in that or uh, it's not a big deal. Then what you're going to see if you're not careful is you continue to compromise to where it will lead to terrible consequences to where it could lead to where you're falling into sin. Paul would say in the New Testament, make no provision for the flesh. Just make no provision for the flesh. Flee useful lust. Flee idolatry. It says get away from it. And so we see these exhortations that are given to us. But I think a, a very important principle that we see here, there was compromise in chapter 1, and now there's disobedience in chapter 2. And it was the voice of the Father and, and the Lord here, the angel of the Lord that was saying, you know, why have you done this? And it's the voice of a loving Father that says to you and to me, when we're headed down the wrong road, that says, why are you going that way? Why are you doing this thing? Why are you headed in that direction? Why are you participating in this? Why is there a compromise? Why are you involved in sin? And if there is one message that we get throughout all of the scriptures, is there is heartbreak when we're involved in sin or that which is contrary to the way that God wants us to live. And he says to you and to me tonight, there's blessing in walking in my ways and knowing my ways. And I hope that we understand that. Do we understand that? We do, don't we? There is blessing in walking in the ways of the Lord and humbling ourselves and yielding ourselves to him. And I don't want us to get into the mindset that we can see so oftentimes in Christianity is how worldly can we be and still be a Christian? That should never be our mindset. It should be how close can I get to you, Lord, and love you and live a life that's pleasing to you. Because that's where we see the blessings and, and that fullness of life, abundant life that the Lord has for you and for me as we have that mindset. And so here was the Lord brokenhearted. See, I think that was the, the attitude of the Lord. It isn't a, a father that's, you know, oh, why have you done this? Or, you know, the Lord. And sometimes we think that he's so angry. I think it's a brokenhearted Lord here that is saying, why have you done this? Why? Why? I think when Adam sinned in the garden, you remember he sinned and he hid from God. He'd walk with God in the cool of the day, it says, before he sinned, and then he sinned with Eve and they hid themselves. And the Lord was saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? Did you eat of that tree? And sometimes we picture the Lord uh, speaking to Adam in an angry voice. You know, Adam, what have you done? Where are you, Adam? Did you eat of that, that tree that you weren't supposed to? Did you eat of the fruit? But I think it was a broken-hearted father saying, Oh, Adam, where are you? Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, what have you done? Did you eat of that fruit that you weren't supposed to? And it's a loving, broken-hearted father that does the same thing with you and I when we're involved in disobedience or compromise in their life. And so here he, he had warned them. And so it was, was, was the result, verses 4 and 5, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They wept. So they call that place Bachim, which means weeping. And if we are not following after the Lord closely and pursuing the things of the world, the gods of the world, you know what it's going to bring? You know what it's going to bring. It's going to bring weeping into your life. And so now we read the, about the death of Joshua in verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. 
And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And so we see the death of Joshua, and we see that Joshua, uh, 110 years old, a faithful servant of the Lord, he's called a servant of the Lord, and that really is, in the Lord's eyes, how it is that you and I can be successful and, and great in his eyes, the one who's the servant of all, the one who just serves him and desires to live a life pleasing to him. You know, sometimes we look at people in ministry that have successful ministries and pastors or whatever, and, and you know, that's what we base it on is maybe the world's definition of successful, but the true success of a person who's in ministry, or for any of us, because we're all in ministry, we're all called to serve him, is one who desires to just be that servant of the Lord. Whether you're serving the Lord in very simple ways or whatever it might be, wherever God places you, whatever he puts on your heart, gives you opportunities to do, just being a servant of the Lord, that's what I want to be known for. When it comes to the end of my life, that he was a servant of the Lord, one who loved the Lord, and that's what is being successful in Lord's eyes. And, of course, Jesus said to be great in the kingdom of God is what? To be the servant of all. And that's what we are called to do. And so Joshua was one 40 years out there in the wilderness being Moses' assistant, 20 years in the promised land, leading the children of Israel in battle and victory and dividing up the land. And so they buried him. And then verse 10 really begins the uh, theme of the book of Judges. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So here we see what the consequences are going to be, we're going to see in verses 11 through 23, um, the Israel's unfaithfulness, kind of a summary of the book of Judges. But after Joshua, that generation that had such great victory and, and, and saw the mighty hand of God working, all of a sudden a generation that rose up that did not know the Lord. This is a relevant message for us today, isn't it? It really is. Because I believe that we're living at a time where we're seeing a generation that's rising up that doesn't know the Lord. And we're seeing more and more of our young people who are not interested in the things of the Lord for various reasons. We don't have time to go and examine it all tonight. Part of it is because the church has diminished the teaching of the Word of God. The church is more focused on we have to have programs and we have to have entertainment. We have to have all kinds of things to keep people's interests and stuff. It is because there are so many things that are out there in the world to pull, you know, the younger generation away. And so we're seeing a generation that's coming out of, you know, the church when they graduate from high school, not wanting to go to church. The, the statistics are incredibly high. Some of them showing that 80% or more of kids coming out of high school youth groups no longer go to church when they leave high school. And that's concerning. And again, there's various reasons. Some of the reasons because pastors are not committed to teaching the Word of God. They're compromising it. It's not the focus. The kids are, are not grounded. So when they, they go off in the world, they get blown out of the water by all kinds of the world's philosophies and ideas and stuff. And that's why I ask you that we pray for our kids here. And that's why, more than anything, I want to see us be determined that the time that we have them here, that we're getting them grounded in God's Word, and that they would understand that the Lord loves them so much and wants to, to bless their lives and has a plan for them, and His promises are true. And here is a generation, for some reason, you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema, the Lord, the, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and know his ways and his word and what teach them diligently to your children what happened what happened i don't know but parents and grandparents i think the greatest thing that that we can pray about and, and really focus and make a priority in our lives is for you to pass on that godly inheritance that you have, your faith in the Lord and your belief in the Lord to your children and to your grandchildren the best way that you can, to pray for them, to share with them, 
to, to, to be ones that you're encouraging them in the things and the ways of the Lord. And, and that's what I hope that we say, Lord, help me to do that. And I understand that they're going to have to grow up and make their own decisions about where they're at with the Lord and believe in the Lord and walking with the Lord. But I pray as much as we can that we would be committed to praying for our kids, praying for our grandkids, praying for the families here at church, praying for their kids, and praying that they would have that godly inheritance that many of you have, and just knowing the Lord and loving the Lord. And that's what I want to do with my children. And that's what I, if the Lord tarries and, and it happens to with my grandchildren, if I ever have grandchildren. But I want to pass on that godly inheritance. And I want them to be able to look at my life and to say, my dad, my granddad, if it comes to that, is a man who loves the Lord. And, and it is a man that, that walks with the Lord and his life has been blessed because of it. And there's something real and different about him. And it's something that I desire as well. That's what I pray. And I know that the enemy is working overtime on our kids. The enemy knows that his time is short. And the enemy is throwing everything that he can at them. And we need to be in that battle of of standing in the gap and praying for them. And that's what I hope that we do, that there is revival that is going on. And that's really what the Lord has put on my heart over the last month or so, that we're really praying for our kids and, and revival would take place in their hearts and in our hearts and, and, and that we would see God touching not only us but our young people in a very deep and very real way. Because our leaves, kids are leaving the faith by the groves. And we want to be ones that we are praying and lifting them up. So here was a generation that didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the works of the Lord. You know, the Lord had put things in place. The Passover, you remember? Do the Passover every year to remember how God brought you out of Egypt. The stones there at Gilgal to remember when they crossed the Jordan River that God brought them into the Promised Land. The the stones on Mount Ebal um, that had the law written on them. All these things that were to be a memorial of reminding them of knowing God and His Word and also the wonderful works that God had done, but they didn't know him. So verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That is something that we're going to see uh, a phrase often in this book, in their, the history of the judges, and then also you see it oftentimes in the Old Testament after the reign of Solomon when the nation split in the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and once again they were plunged deep into idol worship. And so they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baals and the Asterisks. And so we see they began to turn to the gods of the Canaanites because there was compromise, because they began to... to make covenants with them, and all of a sudden they're worshiping their gods. Now, Baal is one of the gods of the Canaanites, was the god of nature and, and, um, and worship. So he was kind of the agricultural god that they worship, and they would serve him and worship him because they thought that they would have good weather for abundant crops. This Baal. Now, when you go to the days of the kings, again, after the days of Solomon, the northern house of Israel, those ten northern tribes, they were deeply entrenched in Baal worship to where they had a temple in Samaria that was dedicated to Baal. And isn't it foolish to, to think that they would turn to an idol to bless the land and, and produce the crops? What did God say to them in the covenant that he made with them? You follow after me, what am I going to do? Bless the land? I'm going to bring the latter rains? You're going to have abundance of crops? And he even said that in your Sabbath year that you rest the land. He said in the sixth year you're going to have a double crops if you just trust in me and, and you do what I tell you to do. You're going to see me working. And it's a good land. And it's going to produce much for you. Great abundance. And they're turning to an idol for that. And what they would experience was drought and famine and locust infestations and all of this. And they still wouldn't turn back to the Lord. So here the foolishness of it, and then Asterisk was one of the gods of sexuality and love and fertility, and his worship would involve 
the wooded groves that you read about in the Old Testament, the high places, the wooded groves, they would go and worship there, and then they would practice all kinds of gross immorality in those places. So they've forsaken the Lord. And the response of God is what he said that um, we see in verse 14. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, as they were greatly distressed. And so we see the response was just as he said, would be in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29. God wanted to bless them, and he did in the days of the judges, but they forsook him willfully, and now they're going to be a slave to sin, and that's what we're going to see, kind of a summary of the book of Judges as we continue on uh, in um, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, uh, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods and served them and bowed down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And so we see here God in his mercy, when they found themselves in captivity and slavery to in bondage to those foreign kings and, and because of their idol worship, um, he would raise up, as they cried out to him, a leader to lead them out of that bondage. And it was God's desire, though, is that they would repent, wasn't it? You see, Second Corinthians talks about that there's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. And worldly sorrow is one that you're just, as he says in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, worldly sorrow that produces death. In other words, worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry for the consequences I'm in. I'm sorry I got my hand caught, you know, taking a cookie out of the cookie jar. And so I'm in big trouble with mom. But there isn't true repentance. Godly sorrow is that that produces repentance, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, leading to salvation. In other words, Godly sorrow is going to lead to true repentance where there's a turning to God and saying this is wrong and I'm going to repent and I turn to you, I confess it and Lord, I'm going to follow after you and I'm going to forsake this. And that's how you're going to always tell when there's true repentance, when there's a forsaking of that which you've been involved in or an attitude that you've had or a sin that you participated and you turn to the Lord. And there is a heartbreak that you've hurt the Lord because of that, there's a true conviction that happens there. But sometimes people will just go through kind of a worldly sorrow, sorrow that they're going through consequences with real no intention of ever turning away from that sin. There's a difference, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And God's desire for them was that they would repent. But what would happen is, is they were in this cycle. They were in the cycle of the judge would rise up, they'd have victory, they'd have rest in the land for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, they go right back into idol worship. And it's interesting here that it says in verse 19 that they behave more corruptly than their fathers by following after gods. See, that's what happens. It got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. More compromise, more compromise, more compromise, more sin, more sin, more sin. That's what we're seeing in our own nation, isn't it? More compromise. More sin. Deeper into depravity being more corrupt than ever before. And so that's what was taking place here. And so verse 20, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because the nation has transgressed. Isn't that interesting? The nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord let those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. That caught my eye when I was reading that this morning 
that he says that this nation has transgressed. Do you remember back in the book of Leviticus in the sin offerings? In that sin offering, you could offer a sin offering for the individual. You would bring the lamb there to the tabernacle and the priest would do it. But also they had the sin offering that was offered for the leaders and then also for the nation. That was done in the Day of Atonement, wasn't it? That atonement was made for the nation. So we know in the Old Testament that God holds nations accountable. Go through the book of Isaiah, the proclamation against Babylon, against Moab, against Ammon, against all those nations, and even the house of Judah and the house of Israel. That's why we need to pray for our nation. Because as we go through this book, we're going to make application for us individually as Christians, but I think that we can see application made for us as a nation as well. As we were a nation, when we came to this land, how it was founded upon the principles, godly principles and belief in God, godly men, and then all of a sudden a nation that was known as a Christian nation until a generation ago, right? And now we've had our president stand up and publicly declare that we're no longer a Christian nation. And how we need to pray for a nation that we turn back to the ways of God and recognize our need for God. But right now we're becoming more and more corrupt. And we are doing what is right in our own eyes. And so a lot what we see going on in the book of Judges is we're going to continue. We can make application for our own country as well. What's taking place as well as make an application if we're not careful what can happen to us individually. So you're probably wondering who are these judges? When are we going to start seeing them? Chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is all who have not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt at Mount Lebanon, and Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So as we enter into chapter 3, some of the Canaanite kings again left, they're in the land after Joshua. Notice that it tells us in verse 1, the nations which the Lord left. Now, why did the Lord leave them? Why weren't they driven out? Because we saw the compromise from the children of Israel to what God had told them to do. And so in that disobedience, God is testing them now. And, and God left those Canaanites to see and to reveal their hearts towards the Lord. And they didn't know war, now they're going to know war. And God's going to test their hearts to see if they will turn to him. Isn't it sad they had to go to war when they didn't have to? They didn't have to go. They had rest in the land. And they would have continued to have rest in the land if they just would have just continued to stay close to the Lord. Listen, when there's disobedience and when there's compromise, there's going to be a warring in your heart. Do you know that? Listen, as a Christian, again, we never want to have the mindset of how worldly can I be and still be a Christian. I don't understand that mentality of what we see so oftentimes in, in some pastors. You know, let's see how worldly we can be and how much of the world we can act like and look like and still be Christians. Kind of like how close to the rocks can we sail that ship before we crash into the rocks? We never want to think that way. What we want to think is, Lord, how close can I get to you, okay, and please you? How close can, Lord, I get to you to where I'm walking in your ways and have a devotion to you and a love for you? And, and that's the key in our lives. Lord, I don't want the world. I don't want to compromise with the world. I don't want to, you know, be involved in, in the pleasures of the world. I want to be devoted to you, and I want to keep steady in my walk with you and you see if you kind of go back and forth on that it's kind of like what it would be elijah the prophet that said to the house of israel how long are you going to be between two opinions how long are you going to straddle the fence it's a miserable place to be because you got too much of the lord in you to to really be totally comfortable in the world but then you got too much of the world in you to be ones that you got that conviction of, oh, I'm not really following after you, Lord. It's a miserable place to be, straddling the fence be between two opinions. So the answer to that 
is we've got choices. Lord, I'm going to put my hand to the plow and I want to look straight ahead and not look back. Lord, I want to run the race that is set before me and I don't want to be hindered. I want to run in a way that I'm going to run to win the prize, Lord, because I know that your ways are good and your ways are true, and Lord, there is blessing in that. And it comes out of, Lord, I want to know you and I want to love you in devotion to you. Okay? So here is the children of Israel. God's testing their hearts to see if they're going to call out to him. Thus the children of Israel, verse 5, dwelt among the Canaanites and Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So all of a sudden they're intermarrying with the Canaanites when they were told not to. You remember clear back in Exodus chapter 34, don't intermarry with them. That was the problem with Solomon. Solomon had a lot of wives and concubines. Many of them were involved in idol worship. And so what did Solomon do? He got enticed into that. They would bring the idols and introduce them to Solomon. He began to worship those idols, and that would plunge a nation into idol worship after that. So God had told them, do not intermarry with the Canaanites. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally yoked. For you who are single, oh, I wish the high schoolers were here. Don't be unequally yoked, please. Wait for that godly man. Wait for that godly woman in your life. If God wants you to be married, wait. Wait on him to bring you that godly individual that you're going to be yoked to spiritually, that you can grow together in the ways of the Lord and in the things of the Lord together. So here were they, giving their daughters to their sons and served their gods, and now we see some of the Judges that are going to be raised up, beginning with Oath and El, verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathium eight years. In verse 9, Then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathium. So the land had rested for 40 years. Then Othanel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the first one is Othanel. Remember, we talked about him in Joshua 15 and in Judges chapter 1. He's the first of the judges. The king of Mesopotamia has him in bondage, and he raised up his judge, Othanel, and they go to war in here, Othanel leads them to victory. They have rest for 40 years. And it is kind of interesting um, when we look at um, this king, Cushan Rastheum, his name means double wickedness. Now, I don't think his mom really named him that. Um, I, his name indicates the kind of guy he was like, double wickedness. This guy was trouble. This guy was bad news. Listen, do not compromise. Do not be involved in going after and pursuing the things of the world, the gods of the world, the pleasures of the world. You know why? Because Satan, he's a terrible, terrible guy, and he will do anything that he can to get a foothold into your life to try to bring you down, to try to destroy you, to try to do you in. Don't go in that direction. It is the book of James that says that you are to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit of God in you is greater than the enemy that is out there. But if you begin to go into his territory, he is double wickedness. He will do anything he can to just get at you and to oppress you, to get a foothold in your life, to bring you down. Don't go in that direction. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he wants to rip your head off. So don't go into his territory. And here's this what they did. And this king was a terrible king. For eight years they were in bondage to this guy. So God raised up a judge and they had rest for 40 years. Then Ehud, verse 12, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went to defeat Israel, took possession of the city of Palms. What's the city of Palms? That's Jericho. Isn't that a sad commentary? You remember Joshua chapter 6, the great victory they had against Jericho? And all of a sudden, here's the enemy, 
in the city of Palms in Jericho that is taking it and, and holding it and, and something that shouldn't have happened. But this is the result of their disobedience. So we see the children of Israel, verse 14, serve Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. In verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from them, Ehad, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehad made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So it's interesting, think about this, that here is um, Ehad. He makes himself a sword, a dagger, it's a cubic lawn. It's about 18 inches long. And he puts it, he's left-handed, and he puts it under his clothes on his right thigh right here. So here's Ehud. He's going to pay tribute to Eglon there. And so what we see in verse 17 is he brought the, the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away who had carried the tribute and he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal. Gilgal, does that ring a bell with you? Gilgal wasn't at the place where the camp of the children of Israel was for about seven years, their base of operation, as they were conquering the land there in the book of Joshua. And here's Eglong there. Eglong's there. He has his palaces there. And so he turned himself back, verse 19, again as we read, the stone images that were at Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehad came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in a cool private chamber. Then Ehad said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehad reached with his left hand, took his dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So here is Ehud. He's a left-handed man. He has his dagger on his right side. Secret Service didn't do a very good job of checking, you know, if he had any weapons on him. Probably because most people were right-handed, weren't they? So if you were right-handed, you would have it on this left thigh. So maybe they checked him there, didn't think anything of it. But it's interesting that the scripture mentions it. And so here's Ehud. He says to Eglon, I got a secret message from God for you. So as Eglon says, you guys get out of here. And so they close the door and he stands up and he pulls out his sword, puts it into his entrails, as it says, and, and his entrails came out as the sword went in. Pretty graphic, isn't it? A couple important lessons here. Number one, he's a left-handed man. That would be unusual. God made him for that purpose, for his purposes to be accomplished. And maybe you're here tonight and you feel like, you know, the way that the Lord made me, I feel so left-handed. I feel so unusual than, than everybody else. God made you the way that you are because he has a plan and a purpose for you if you just trust in him. And maybe you look at everybody else as being right-handed in this way, but I seem to be the odd one or the left-handed or whatever it might be. God made you the way you are because he loves you and he knows what he's doing. And he wants to use you in a powerful, powerful way. I think that's why the Lord put this here. And maybe you're here thinking I'm left-handed in the things that I do or whatever it might be. You know what? God knows what he's doing. And he wants to use you in the way that he made you. If you just yield to him and say, okay, Lord, this is the way you made me. This is my personality. And you know what? Enjoy the Lord in that way. So oftentimes we want to be like everybody else. Just be who you are and excel in who you are in the things of God as he just made you and uses you in your personality or whatever it might be. There's going to be other times that we're going to read that the Lord made an individual short because he was able to go into a cave and be able to be used of the Lord. Things like that. So the Lord has a plan and a purpose. He knows what he's doing with you. The second of all, the sword went in and then the entrails came out. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And listen, 
The Word of God, you've got to have it penetrate your heart. And then the fleshly stuff is going to come out. That is so important why we're in Bible study. And I know it's not easy for you guys to come out on Wednesday nights when you've been working and the week is long and all of that. But continuing in the Scriptures, because the Word of God is like a two-edged sword, and it is alive and powerful. And as it goes into your heart and pierces your heart, then the fleshly stuff is going to come out, you see? And that's what the Scripture tells us in Psalm 119. And tells us how can a young man cleanse his way by taking on the Word of God, by taking heed to the Word of God. Jesus would say that you are clean by the words that I've given to you in John chapter 6. The Word of God is powerful and alive, and it's the way to maturity. You know, a couple of us were talking this morning um, in the daily grind. It's an opportunity for guys to come in early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock in the morning, to just look at the Bible for us to pray with you and stuff and encourage you. And we were talking about how, you know, if we're not careful, the thing is that we don't want to grow in the way that God wants us to because we become impatient. We live in a society where we want things right away, don't we? We want things instantly and now and gimmicks and, and all of this. There's no shortcut to growing in the Word of God and maturing in the things of God, but to continually be taking in the two-edged sword, taking in the Word of God, and then as you do and grow in the Word of God, you're going to see the fleshly things are just going to be coming out and becoming less and less, having less of a grip on your life and on your heart because the Word of God is there hiding in your heart. There's no other shortcut to maturity and growing as being one that is established in God's Word and being filled with the Spirit and yielding to the Lord. But it's something that doesn't happen overnight. It's a continual steadiness with the Lord, looking to the Lord every day of your life, moving forward. And I believe the Lord wants us to continue to grow all the days of our lives. So don't stop Bible study. Don't stop praying. Don't have the mindset of, I've been there, done that. I've served the Lord. I've done my thing. The Lord's not through with you. He's not through with me. He wants to continue to grow us and to use us. But don't get complacent. Don't get complacent, especially in the days in which we're living. Because they are very difficult days. And people need to see that you and I are ones that were staying on course with the Lord. So as the sword went in, the entrails came out. Ehud, he shuts the door behind him. Verse 24, And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. To their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's going to the bathroom. So verse 25, They waited until they were embarrassed. They waited, they waited, they waited. So finally they said, something's not right. So they opened the doors of the upper room, took the key and opened them, and there their master fallen dead on the floor. But he had an escape while he delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet of the mountains of Ephraim. The children of Israel went down with him to the mountains, so he led them. And then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab and stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land rested for 80 years. Now this is the longest that the land will rest in between judges, in between their rebellion, is 80 years. And we're going to see that they're going to be more and more in rebellion as the judges are raised up. And so the third judge in the last verse after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with uh, ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. We don't know too much about Shamgar, except that he killed 600 Philistines. Whether he did that in one battle or during his life, we don't know for sure, but he did it with an ox goad. Now, ox goad, that is. Now, you know what that is. That's just a long stick. You can see him. I used to see him in Thailand all the time when we were in the mission field. A guy, he used to walk his ox to this field. And every day with that goat, just kind of making the ox walk and taking their time, they go to field. And you know how it is in, in our country when we want to dig a, a, a ditch. He was digging an irrigation ditch. We get a backhoe back there and just get it done, don't we? Well, not this man. His life was... 
take his ox out there to graze in the field. He'd dig about that long of ditch in a day and then take that goat and have his ox go back home. They would go back home. That's what they did every day. He was in no big hurry. So here is this goat that's about six feet long that he uses because the enemy would always take the weapons away from the ones that they held captive. And he used it to be able to bring victory to the children of Israel. The lesson, and we'll close here. What has God given to you? And what has he put in your hand? Remember Moses? Moses threw down the staff and Moses threw it down and it turned into a snake. Moses picked it up and, and God used that staff. And when Moses was on the mountain, it was called the staff of Moses there in Exodus chapter 2. When you go to Exodus chapter 4, or actually in Exodus chapter 3, it's called the staff of Moses. Exodus chapter 4 when he left the mountain to go to Egypt to free the children of Israel, all of a sudden it became the staff of God. So what's in your hand? For this Shamgar, it was an ox goad. For Moses, it was the staff that he used, and he raised it up and he parted the Red Sea. For you, it might be whatever. Some of you guys are pretty handy with your hands. It may be a storybook to, to tell the children as you teach them in the toddler's class. It might be a Bible as you teach a small home group. It, it might be a number of things. What has the Lord placed in your hand? Maybe it's a guitar, an instrument to help lead worship. But whatever God has gifted you and whatever he has placed within you to be used of him, use it for his glory. And here, who would ever thunk that this guy could defeat so many Philistines with just a little instrument that he would use to guide his ox. And sometimes we think, Lord, what can you do with me? You know, I think, Lord, when we came up to Greeley, all we had was a Bible, a stool, and a cheap guitar. What can you do with that? And he's not done. And you might ask the same thing, Lord, what can I do with what you placed in my hand? Well, why don't you give him a chance to see? to do great things through you as you yield to him. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time we've had in your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for, Lord, just this book that we can learn how it is that we can stay the course and not compromise and get involved with disobedience. But, Lord, not to be distracted or enamored with the things of the world and ways of the world. And, Lord, there were so many things that they had placed, memorials, Passover they were to celebrate, stones that were there at Gilgal and all of a sudden there's the enemy with his palace there because they had compromised. Lord, tonight we come to the communion table to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us to set us free. And Lord, how the Lord, because of his death on Calvary's cross, to not only bring us out of the world but a life of fullness and richness of your blessings as we just walk with you. So I pray that tonight as we come to the communion tables, we would give thanks to you, Lord, for what Jesus has done for us in dying on Calvary's cross, allowing his body to be broken and his bloodshed for forgiveness of sin. And Lord, that we would know that you desire to do so much in our lives. And Lord, that if there's anything that you've been dealing with us, that we would confess it and there would be godly sorrow because it's a loving Father that perhaps, as he speaks to you, brokenheartedly saying, why? Follow after me. I want to bless you. I love you. So bless this time as we hold the elements in our hands, as we approach the communion table. Lord, just focusing and worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.